Hi, I'm Michaela Loach. And I'm Rebecca. And this is the Yikes Podcast. Welcome back to the Yikes podcast, the podcast that kind of talks all things yikes in the world. And rather than running away from them, we actually want to lean into them, gather collectively and transform that energy into change. So we talk um, all things about like climate justice, refugee rights, anti-racism, anti-oppression, activism, transformation, all the things. And usually uh, the pot is co-hosted by me, Joe Becker. And Michaela Loach. Um, but today, Michaela is busy. And so we have another co host, which is the fabulous Just Mali, uh, which you know from other two episodes that we've already had her on. We're so delighted to have you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thank you, especially for not noticing my little scheme <laughs> of uh, being a guest first and now being a co host. Michaela, I'm coming for you. Just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah, no. <laughs> It's, it's so amazing to have you and also like I think especially for this conversation oh. it was just such a beautiful conversation mm -hmm. we because we have a very special guest um, and we're super excited to have her on the podcast so Heima Manzua Khan um, who is the author of Tangled and Terror Uprooting Islamophobia um, and generally an incredible poet, writer, educator and does incredible and so much different work and like mm -hmm. we'll put her links and everything yeah. in the bio please check out her work She's get the book absolutely incredible get the book literally get the book get the book and check out her, her other work yeah and so this kind of conversation is about her book and some other themes that we expand on all things about kind of like the colonized mind Uh, state surveillance, abolition, um, different kind of um, aspects around Islamophobia and generally how that is connected to all, all other forms of oppression, colonialism and coming together in community and power. Um, so loads of loads of bits. Um, we hope you enjoy the episode and um, I'm sure, well, we're sure you'll love it as much as, as we did. So enjoy. so excited to have you um like yes. yeah i don't know i've been uh, kind of following your work for a while like your poetry and then mm. i saw your book and i mean you've done lots of other writing as well and um was just super excited when i saw that kind of like yeah you're part of this like series that i was reading other books by pluto and then like i saw this and yeah i don't know somehow mm. and then actually today one of your poems also showed up on my timeline oh, yeah. because yes. the one about the British values because <laughs> the day that we are recording for people for context it's jubilee something something some <laughs> some reason we're celebrating the monarchy something and... to do the queen something to do yeah. yeah and so yeah your poem kind of showed up about British values but um maybe actually 
before we dive into any of that. Um, do you want to introduce yourself, your work, yeah, everything yeah. that yeah, you want to share with thank us? Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm also really excited. And um, yeah, I'm so my name is Sahima, um, Sahima Manzo Khan. I'm a, I, I tend to say I'm a poet, a writer and an educator. And I think that's because yeah, I feel like that order is is kind of captures it. I think, yeah, creativity is really central to the ways I like to think, um, imagining different possibilities than this world. Um, I write in lots of different ways, um, as I'm sure we'll talk about, but then I do think at the heart of all of that for me is, is sharing ideas and kind of tools and ways for each other to, you know, navigate this world differently. Um, and I've, I've, you know... <sighs> benefited so much I guess from other people's ideas and that's changed the way I can interact with the world and so I kind of just you know I think sharing those same tools with other people or new tools is, is a really exciting thing so that's why I kind of say educator um but yeah the whole range of things um that I'm very lucky to get to do and um one of them being here with you guys today <laughs> <laughs> amazing and you do them so well like even just hearing you talk now like in your introduction the way you weave in you know ideas around imagining and imagination and imagining new futures like is something that really sort of stood out to me like even your book and all of that so oh. thank you for the work you do before we even get oh, into the conversation you. like That's yeah really, really actually kind. i i've i've learned a lot lot just even reading your book so it's amazing to be here with you i also love that you kind of you know i mean the themes that you already just now spoke about but then kind of for you also this like well play or imagining but also the creativity is kind of like first rather than like maybe mm. a lot of times when I feel like I encountered or even for myself for a long time I felt like I had to be like uh, first like angry or like first like I had to be first an educator and then think about creative projects or I had to first think about like the learning and the unlearning part and yeah. and that's that's all in capture but that can also be encaptured in the creativity right and yeah. in, um and i like the there's one poem that um it's called what well, that you wrote um this is not a humanizing poem and like in in there like i don't know for me one of the things that really like stuck out was this kind of of this like well I don't have to convince you of anything that I do or that I am like if you don't see that then that's on you that's your that's you lacking I don't have to mm -hmm. prove my humanity you know these are things that you have internalized or that 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 are socially constructed based on certain narratives but like I'm just doing I'm just me mm -hmm. and like and kind of like these stories that are being told like through poetry or other writing in a creative kind of way are like so moving and I feel like a lot of times like we don't actually give that enough credit like of like mm. how much more powerful that can be because it relates yeah. it goes straight to the heart right I don't know I, how you yeah found I've that. been I've been always like I think it's always such a good reminder when people interact with my work like even you know I could, I could write a book I wrote an essay I could write even at that time with that poem I was writing my master's dissertation about those same themes and I remember after the poem kind of went viral I thought you know two people probably maybe three will read my dissertation and I think the poem has had like two million views and I just mm. thought actually who in a way it does you know that whole academic framework and, and even outside of academia I think the ways that we sometimes have to write even with this book you know like I'm I'm really proud of it but at the same time I think poetry is accessible and hard-hitting and straight to the point in a way that I think move like you said I think moves people mm. and 
I think to, to kind of to act, you have to be moved. You, you, I think we, we kind of, you know, in the last few years, we've seen a lot of people saying like, you know, what can I read to become anti-racist or what can I read to? And it's like, actually, the reading alone won't change us. It's something else. And I think, I've, you know, I'm sure we've seen this in ourselves. I've seen that in myself that, yeah, reading and understanding is one thing, but actually hearing and, and I guess maybe it's just the human part of us that like storytelling remains something Absolutely. really essential, doesn't it? So, yeah, I do think about that a lot. I love that that idea of to to act you have to be moved, and um and I was wondering actually like we're, we're diving straight into the conversation, but if I could um do you know do this thing that I don't, some some authors love, some authors hate, but I'm just going to do it. I'm going to read something <laughs> from your book. <laughs> okay, good for it. Um, <laughs> just on that note of like you know being being moved and love to ask you some questions around it. So in your introduction, um, so obviously you know we're talking about Tangled and Terror. Um, you talk about what the book is about. And then you essentially say, it's not about how we should specifically define Islamophobia. And you say, instead, this book asks what Islamophobia does and how understanding its function is central to understanding how we can build a world that is safe for all oppressed, exploited, and marginalized people, rather than a world that is secure, in inverted commas, for nation states to repress and imperialist capitalist interests to accumulate profit. And this is the one that I love so much. You say the only way Islamophobia can be uprooted is by sowing the seeds for another world altogether. I mean, talk about being moved to act. Yeah. <laughs> um, that that idea of sowing the seeds for another world altogether. And that's such a theme as well, it feels like. And I wondered if you maybe just to like kick us off, could speak to that a little bit more in terms of yeah. how that shows up in your work, what you were hoping, how, you know, how it's showing up in the book as well. This different approach. Yeah, no, I'm really glad that you kind of picked that as the the, the entry point into this conversation, because in a way I, I didn't want this book and, and in general, I think there's a lot of conversations we have about injustices in general, um, racism specifically, perhaps that, you know, focus on what can we do in the immediate term to alleviate conditions? What kind of, you know, changes can we make to to address the, the superficial kind of manifestations? And I don't say superficial to say that they're not um, traumatic, but to say that mm. they're not the root the causes. Mm -hmm. Right, the symptoms precisely. Mm -hmm. And I think that what one of the things I was thinking about a lot with writing the book is, you know, I, I come back to this point again and again, you know, what are the root causes? How do we address them? But I also felt like it's not enough it's not enough and it doesn't feel enough I think to write a book that is simply kind of saying we need to resist we need to push back we need to uproot and I kind of felt that in a way that can be quite heavy on a reader as well and particularly because I know a lot of the readers of this book will experience racism and Islamophobia themselves and I didn't want it to feel like now the onus is on you to you know just go away and resist all these things and so I think I wanted that invitation to be there from the start, that actually this is also a project. And, you know, a lot of abolitionist scholars write about this, that the project of abolition is also one of building a new thinking, imagining, playing. And so mm -hmm. that is, you know, that idea, you know, it's not it's not my idea. It's like taken from all these people I learned from. But I really wanted to put this conversation within that lineage and kind of say that, you know, I... I don't only want to dismantle, I, I actually think that there are other things we can do. And, and, and in a way, this is just, you know, analysing Islamophobia is just one way into recognising <laughs> that all the violence we see around us is interconnected and therefore hopefully just one avenue for somebody to go, ah, what else might there be? And 
in a way, you know, and I talk about as well, I think in the introduction that just to link to what we were just saying that, you know, it was when I was facilitating poetry workshops with young people, actually, that I was really kind of keen to write this book because it was the feeling of, you know, they deserve to imagine more. They, they really, they, I don't want them to kind of grow up in this, and this imagination of themselves that is so limited. And so that is what I think, you know, the sowing the seeds for another world altogether is material, but it's also psychological, it's emotional. Um, and yeah, and I think it's, it's. I remember myself and um, a friend, we always used to talk about kind of turning away from. So it's like, um, you know, we, we always kind of focused on what we're turning away from. So we're turning away from violence, but what are we turning to? And I think that's what I wanted to also focus on. Yes, right? I'm like so, snapping my yeah, fingers. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's how I felt when she said it first as well. Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Aziza Johnson. Um, but yeah. I love that a lot. Yeah, I think, I mean, also this like part of, I think resisting is such a, and in many ways, right, like what you're saying is like, yes, we do need to resist in so many ways. But also, I mean, especially for people who experience violence to always be resisting that's also yet again I guess a distraction I think Tony Morrison talked about it right how like white supremacy is a distraction actually from also imagining like other things or just like yeah. living your life and how you are thriving right and like this like even now like I think like we've talked about this on the podcast before like resistance or like rest is resistance like why can't we just like rest you know like why does it have to be against this like why can't we Mm. do things just out of the joy or out of community but why does Mm. it always have to be measured what we're doing it against and like Mm -hmm. um and I, I think this is like yeah what are we actually turning for because or like turning towards because that's actually a really hard question right of like right. how do we imagine stuff and like I mean even when we look at our movies and everything it's usually about destruction this violence this this is it and like imagining like very joyful thriving just centered yeah. futures yeah is such an overwhelming beautiful <laughs> question right but it's like really well is. we need but that we need that so much more right because only when mm-hmm. you actually know what you're turning towards that's I think sometimes also people need the reassurance that they can that they know what they are turning towards, right? And I think like, also, though, it's okay for us to not know because I do sure, think part sure. of, part, yeah, because I think sometimes we put that pressure on ourselves as mm. well, though, to be like, what, you know, what, what exactly are we going to replace it with? And I think yeah. maybe, maybe part of the, you know, it, it, we kind of need it to be unknown because if we knew, then you know, kind of, we're just going to re- re- reproduce something, aren't we? Yeah. And I think that's, that's such an interesting sort of point to, to go to, especially in the context of your book, you know, talking about, um, the, the untangling and understanding of the con- concept of Islamophobia and how, how, where it sits and all of that. You, you know, you talk so much about the, the role co- colonization plays in all of this, right. And how actually, you know, how how can we imagine a better world if we're all and we are all so impacted by the stories of colonization about ourselves, about the world that we live in and is actually part of the beauty of not knowing. That means there's, there's that, that not knowing is that window of opportunity hmm. to and I use this term and I'm just going to use it to decolonize, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm hesitating as I'm saying it because I feel like it's become such a trendy word, but our imagination and our ability to imagine a different world. And I wondered if you could specifically in the context of your book and your work, but also just broader speak a little bit to that, like what, 
what does that look like and how is how our minds are conditioned and how we're impacted by yeah. all these stories and these narratives uh, yeah. how is that impacting our ability to imagine and and how do we start moving out of that mm. yeah um, great questions and I think you know I'm sitting in the thoughts myself right I don't have the answers mm. but I think the thing that I can trace is that the reason I wanted to situate Islamophobia within colonialism is that I just don't think we can understand anything that we're witnessing right now without kind of that long view of history. And actually, yeah. it's not that long. You know, we're still within yeah. the colonial world order, right? And that's what's kind of really disturbing Hello. about these conversations. <laughs> so I, I wanted to do that because I think it also helps us to understand um, race. And like, you'll notice in the book, I spend, you know, a, a big part of the first chapter kind of just setting out the fact that and I think I say it like this, that, you know, sometimes we think that racism exists because races exist, but actually it's the other way around, that race is constructed to justify then differential treatment, you know, injustice, exploitation, dehumanization. And I think to kind of summarize, maybe in a way, one of the things that racism does and colonialism does, and, so, and, and that's the thing I wanted to kind of make sure we understand, I suppose the reason it's important to connect those two things is that when we do that, I think we understand that racism doesn't just exist accidentally, randomly because of, you know, moral, you know, unkindness. It has always been beneficial. And so what I mean by that is that colonialism was a project that benefited European states. It helped them build the infrastructures, nations, wealth that, you know, structures the world we're in today. And that felt really important because once once we kind of have a, a reason for why racism exists. It's many different manifestations can be analysed, but they ultimately can't be, you know, we don't have to kind of distinguish them too greatly. And that was important to me because I think a lot of conversations about Islamophobia go kind of, ah, 9-11 happened and then Muslims were deemed a threat and then people started hate criming Muslims. And like, sure, I understand that, that there was a big shift in discourse and the war on terror discourse has really kind of animated the 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 figure of the muslim threat the muslim terrorist the muslim patriarch in a way that obviously is really detrimental for us but through all of that whether we were you know however far back we trace it ultimately i would say just to answer your question in terms of how that impacts our psyches and our imaginings what, what i've seen day to day and in my own life but also amongst others is that if you have learned to internalize this idea that you are only an object right? And this is what colonialism does, right? That human beings are like the flora and the fauna. They are just other objects. And not only are you an object, but you're an object that must prove yourself. You know, you referred to my poem earlier, this is not a humanizing poem. I mean, a big part of that poem is really about after, you know, a terrorist attack happens, every Muslim person or someone who's assumed to be Muslim is then tasked with uh, proving or disproving their goodness or, you know, lack of goodness. And we see this the same thing with, you know, um, immigrants, you know, you're a good immigrant, are you contributing to the nation or are you a lazy scoundrel, thieving, whatever kind of immigrant? And in either case, you know, you're still an object whose worth and value and therefore material kind of what you get to experience, the healthcare, you get access to the work, you get access to the home, the, the all of that is determined by those things. And one thing that I've I kind of really tried to, not not try to, one thing that I think I've really noticed or seen the, the impact of more and more is, is the way that all of that then forces us as racialized people to perform. So your whole life you're performing, right? And 
in terms of Islamophobia, you're performing because of the surveillance of the state. So you need to perform a type of Muslimness that is palatable, that is not going to be hyper-criminalized. Um, you know, and I talked to so many people when I was researching for the book who, you know, consciously or subconsciously have done this. You know, school children who know, oh, I probably shouldn't talk about X, Y, Z thing at school because it's going to make, you know, I'm going to uh, um, encounter scrutiny. And I think this kind of really intimate psychological impact is getting, given very little kind of time. But if you kind of speak to every single individual, I think that's the thing that is really, not every single person will experience the sharp end of state violence, right? And obviously there were harrowing stories of people who, you know, were detained in Guantanamo Bay, are detained in Guantanamo Bay, you know, do have their homes raided. And those are like vital stories. But actually what's interesting is that everyone that those things don't happen to still lives with the trauma of that in the sense of the hyper, you know, the hyper, um, what I call it, just hyper vigilance, yeah, and self surveillance. Um, and then, and then as a result, you never really get to live on your terms because you're just living on the terms of all these objectifying gazes. And I think there's a real tragedy in there that, like, you know, the heartbreak of that I, I don't think can be fully articulated because. And then this goes back to the thing about working with the kids, right? Where it's like 12-year-olds are writing poems that are already, I am not a terrorist, I am not blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you're 12, you shouldn't have to exist only in relation to these objectifying gazes that have come through centuries of, you know, Orientalism, colonialism. You should get to be so much more. And so I think that's some of the ways that these things impact us. And of course, the material um, manifestation of Islamophobia through, like I say, surveillance, um, and just the kind of different, uh, you know, you obviously have imperialism and you have this, the border violence and all the different places that Muslims are positioned as threats. It, it kind of means the space to be, one of the things I say in the book is the space to be Muslim on our own terms. It just shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. Um, so yeah, a lot of, yeah, I think there's a lot of ways that that, that kind of has an impact on us. Our, our imaginations and our ability to dream and even as you're talking now like one of the things that I love so much about the book as well is the way in which you keep coming back to how interconnected it all is right and as you were just talking about the the trauma like in, in the work I do I think a lot about like racial trauma and like how it impacts even if, if as we're not aware right it just impacts like how we move through the world and um in that sort of you know, one of the things you touch on in here, and and I'm wondering if you can speak to that connection a little bit more, is language as well, mm. right? Like how how language, on the one hand, obviously shapes how we internalize ourselves, and in the context of Islamophobia, how that is internalized. Mm. But again, how interconnected it is, and then, but also language in how it shapes reality. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, what, yeah. Where does language fit there? Like what matters there and how, you know, people are going to listen, they're going to go read the book, like all of that. But how do we actually, yeah, like use that as a tool maybe? I don't mm. know. Mm. No, I I'm, I think that's a really good question because, you know, as someone who works with words and writing is something that I think sometimes we maybe underestimate the, the value or the power of language and not to overestimate it either, like, you know, material conditions exist. But I do think um, 
for, so kind of one of the calls to action, I suppose, that I make to people at the end of the book is that if you feel, you know, overwhelmed and there's nothing that you can materially do, you know, you don't hold power in these ways. Actually, we all have the power to name things and not name things. And so to give you an example, one of the invitations I make is what would happen? And it's just a question. And, I, and whenever I've done an event, I've posed this to, you know, so say there's 100 people in this room, what would happen? Or if everybody listening to this podcast um, stopped calling um, a Muslim person who perpetrates violence a terrorist and instead called them a person who perpetrates violence, what does that do in terms of how we then have to analyse that violence? Can we just essentialize it and say it's just due to a cultural defect, it's a religious extremism, we can't understand it, there's no context? Or do we then have to go, huh, why and start to contextualize and start to ask questions. And what happens when we do that? And, and on the other hand, the other invitation I make is what would happen if rather than referring to um, security, we talked about state violence as violence. And we said that, you know, the state raided these people's homes or, you know, the state brutalized these people. And even the state, you know, who I think, you know, there are all these words that we have. I remember one of the most powerful things I heard somebody kind of invite invite me to in a call to action was, it was this idea that, you know, when we don't name things, they appear to be natural in our surroundings. And so once we start naming them, we denaturalize. And I think that's what's really powerful about, you know, scholars like Bell Hooks, like, you know, she went out of her way to say things like, you know, it's it's a mouthful, right? The white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. What You know, why do that? It feels some people might feel like, oh, you don't need to say it every time, like we know what you're talking about. But to name those things every time does something and it reveals something. And I so I think that that what you're asking about the power of language, in of itself, just naming something is is powerful because the in a way, all of these violences hide behind the fact that they they're just natural. They're just part of the context. They're nothing to be seen. It's the status quo. And once you start naming them, you start seeing them. And once you start seeing them, you start being able to kind of contextualize. And one of the things I say is that, well, one of the things I guess I realized myself was just that it actually was really empowering to me when I realized that, let's take racism. (laughs) Once you start naming it and you trace it, you kind of go, ah, this was made. This isn't just, you know, part of like the the world since time immemorial and if it was made the the bit that excites me is surely it can be unmade surely it has if it had a beginning surely it has an end and I think that about everything because people will say you know prisons have been around forever oh the schooling system's been around forever nothing has been around forever except for you know like maybe not even like the rivers and the trees right like there's nothing really that is that infinite and that excites me and I do think like you know maybe I'm perhaps overly biased towards the power of language but I do think and it's just from my own experience language has done that for me and I believe that it can it can do something you know think about even um the occupation of Palestine using the term occupation does something different using the term colonization does something different um and I find that really powerful and you know why and you can see the power of it in the fact that those 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 vested interests who have a you know, who benefit from the status quo, they actually, they will ban things like music, like Mm -hmm. poetry, like Mm -hmm. writing, like books. Why then? There must be a power to language. And I think, yeah, I think that that question you've asked is is an exciting one because it kind of means that we all then have some power, right? And sometimes we feel powerless, but actually, and, you know, going back to that original question, I'll, I'll end the point here is just, if 100 people in that room or everybody who listens to this podcast does do that, you're actually going to cause disruptions and little dissolutions and little 
fragmentations in conversations that does cause somebody to change the way they're looking at the world. And, you know, maybe that is the beginning of how we change the world is just changing how we all look at it. Mm. I love that. I love that a lot. I think also, I think what you're saying, like this like normalizing of certain ways that we speak about things. And, and we know also that it's possible, right? Because we know that like language, for example, for a white supremacist person who perpetrates violence, you know, like when it's rooted in something, we don't call it by that. We call it a, yeah. if it's like a, you know, let's take recent examples, a shooting, you know, you call it an, an incident or yeah. a sole perpetrator, an individual. And when it's related to other things where white supremacy comes in, then suddenly we have the language to relate to a culture. And so we actually know that it's it's very possible to yeah, exactly. have, to use different languages when we want to use certain language, right? Yeah. And so I think Good like point. what you're saying there is like, yeah, like, I mean, also these words, you know, occupy Palestine rather than, you know, like kind of this like normalization also of violence where we kind of hide we hide violence by language yeah. because we think either it's too much work or because in certain contexts it's not acceptable. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, this is the problem, right? That <laughs> it is right. acceptable to hide violence by language by making others uncomfortable. And also what you're saying, like this, you know, that um, the power, when you see that, you know, poetry or music is being banned from certain places, from, you know, certain stuff i mean low-key recently on spotify having these attacks on his on, on yeah. his music yeah and you know it's i think sometimes so interesting because it seems so, depending on the context sometimes it almost seems like i mean not in the uk increasingly less and less and less and obviously also depends on the context where almost like a protest is sometimes more acceptable in some ways obviously very much dependent also who kind of goes and and uh, you know with the with the new bills and the new political space in the UK at the moment that's changing dramatically but it almost seems sometimes like a public outcry because it's it's still so state controlled it's still so mm, surveilled in some ways it's kind of like oh at least we can contain it suddenly the when we go into community spaces it almost seems like so much more controlled because mm. right like actually they're organizing by themselves like they are building networks where you know it's completely tapped into the power of also like seeing and like suddenly re-relating to each other where maybe before there were certain bonds that were actively we were actively turned against each other mm. right um mm. whether we know it or not and so it almost seems some, sometimes like you know the like state violence is and surveillance and all of these kind of systems are so in those spaces where almost we find like oh it's just art you know or mm, like yeah, oh yeah, it's just yeah. like it's just like this but actually like almost sometimes it's more controlled than like you know so something else that we that we think is so much more radical but actually yeah, yeah. like it's in those nuanced spaces that like really moves us right and that builds connection and we're like wow mm. okay like you know we are turned against each other and like how how do how do we undo that and i guess a lot of it is connecting with each other or reconnecting mm. right but that's really interesting because i think what you're saying about how you know, there are these spaces that potentially really threatening to the status quo. Mm. I think one of the things I realized through researching this book is how how much the state is kind of increasingly co-opting all of those spaces, really. And, you know, and I've had my own experiences, you know, being invited to a literature festival that then it turns out is funded through counter extremism. And, you know, mm. these spaces that formerly we think of as like, these are the spaces where, you know, even in a police state, you can still write poetry, yeah. right? But it's like, actually, if you're poetry workshops are funded by the state you know what what can someone say what can't someone say and mm -hmm. I think I think that it's really 
I think that can be a really overwhelming thing to think, but it also on the inverse, like what you're saying, I take a lot of, um, the, the, the learning I take from that is we are so terrifying to the status quo. Like the state is actually yeah. terrified of what we might do when we come together, when we think together, when we give each other those tools. And so... It's giving me goosebumps. Yeah, yeah, no. And I, I, I think it's it's the it's like the flip side, right? It's like, oh, so we're really powerful. Ah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Okay, let's do it, guys. <laughs> Honestly, I've, I've been sitting here ever since you made this statement where you said around racism it was made so it can be unmade and i've read i've read it in your book so it's not new i do this work it's not new <laughs> but there was something in how you just said what you said like i literally am like holding back tears mm. because um and i'm actually just not gonna hold them back because i think <laughs> ooh, <laughs> joe did you think about that when you asked me to co-host this podcast that i didn't cry in public <laughs> um safe space we actually have the, we have power, right? And if we have power, that means that, that, that we can change. And, and I, I, I wanted to, you know, you, you kept reiterating it now and everything else that you said, but I just feel like we need to sit in this moment for a minute, even as people are listening, you know, it's so easy to just jump ahead and go, okay, so we have power. So, but then also here's everything else that is wrong, but one second, like if language, for example, we're using the language example, and, and I know that obviously we need to talk about material realities as well, but they're so interlinked. If it is so powerful, if I have power, what does that mean hmm. now when I'm walking away from listening to this conversation? Mm -hmm. What does that mean for when I you know, go into, and not as a pressure, but as an empowerment, hmm. as, a, as a when I use the word, and, and I don't know, I just... I'm, I'm so encouraged by you and like by your work and and by this conversation. And I just want people to like, if you're listening to this, like literally maybe even push pause for a second and like take a deep breath and go, you have power and together, right? Mm -hmm. Like as we do this together, I'm going to walk away from this conversation different. So yeah. our community now has actually, is going to have an impact on how I move through what I'm going to do after this. And that's that's actually mind blowing because then mm -hmm. I'm like, do you know what? Actually, nothing can stop us, no, and we don't think about that enough. It's just an insane thought to an extent, right? Like mm. because it's, I don't think we allow ourselves to think that because no, because yeah, like the potential is is kind of <laughs> overwhelming as well. And I, and again, not to take away from the material at all, but I think something I just on that point, I think that I've noticed people in the Q&As that I've kind of done around the book in particular, there's always this question that comes up that is around, if I was to kind of summarize it, something to do with how do I, how do I deal with being so afraid and how do you, how do I have hope? And I kind of think everything, everything is in this point that we, we're kind of stuck on right now, which is that actually the fear, the thing I always try to remind myself because we all feel fear is that, you know, who benefits from that fear? And it's not you, it's not me. And so, and I, you know, I had my own experience with this, which really, I think, I think on an embodied level really impacted me. And I write about it in the final chapter of the book, which is that one year, one year, a couple of years ago, I made a, um, 
a, a documentary on Radio 4, BBC Radio 4, right? So very institutional, very, form, you know, nothing radical, right? And it was about poetry. It was about Muslim poets and kind of how they use poetry. Mm-hmm. And I wanted it to be, you know, I think there were like certain political things I wanted it to do, but then I don't know that it was, you know, who listened, right? I don't really know how powerful it was. However, I got a call a couple of days after it came out from the BBC and they said, um... You know, we've been contacted by the crime and security correspondent from The Times. The Times being, you know, this massive news corporation. And I was like, okay. And they were like, yeah, they have an issue with you being a presenter on Radio 4. And I was like, what? And they were like, yeah, because you... So what had happened, I mean, it's really convoluted, but I think the convolution of it really shows you something. So the Henry Jackson Think Tank Society, who claim to be an independent think tank, but are kind of notoriously neoconservative, very Islamophobic, you know, their members have said things that like, you know, uh, the the problem with, in Europe is Muslims, like we need to deal with this problem, like very kind of explicit Islamophobia. Um, they had emailed the Times saying, you know, this girl, this poet, she's made um, a documentary and we, she, she it was something like she... Um, she supports people who have been alleged to be terrorist sympathizers. So it's like this really convoluted accusation, right? <laughs> and as a result, we don't think she should have been on the documentary. They're then asking the BBC for comment. The, ti- the Times take this on. So in the chapter, what I kind of ask is, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, <laughs> I'm researching for this chapter, right, when this is happening. And it's a chapter about who benefits materially. And I'm really intrigued by this scenario. And I'm kind of like, okay, so the Times of major news corporation privately owned, you know, makes huge profits mm-hmm. from Islamophobic stories that are sold. Yeah. The Henry Jackson Think Tank Society, their donors are, you know, the same people who fund Re- Republican Party, Conservative Party, like they're these big kind of major funders. And so my, que- and, and, and so when I had initially, when I had had that call, my heart was pounding. Mm-hmm. I remember like on a very embodied level, you know, yes. that feeling of like, I can't really breathe. I remember that, you know, that, that feeling where you can kind of feel the blood going through your veins. And I was, I was typing up this draft of like the tweets I was going to tweet in response to this piece that came out. The piece never came out, alhamdulillah, thanks to God. But what it made me think about was why do these major profit-making machines care about one tiny individual and it's not just me right they've done this mm. these kind of smears with lots of different people but that i think the when i thought about it that was when for me i had my personal moment of flipping from fear from terror to hope because it was wait a second are you actually telling me i'm so powerful that you're so afraid wow. of me saying something you know and it was because it was mm. that moment of but why would they care and suddenly it's like you know what if they have that much money, that much resource, that much power, and they're invested in silencing, you know, me just doing some poetry documentary, then, wow, you know what, maybe actually I am powerful. And in a way, I think it was a counterintuitive thought where it was like, instead of silencing myself on the back of that, then let me speak, because clearly they're quaking in their boots, you know? And I think we we forget that. They're really Mm -hmm. afraid of us. They're really afraid. Wow. I mean, I'm, I mean... Thank you for sharing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, that's absolutely horrible that you had to go through that. And I mean, you know, beautiful that you came out of like, oh, I can I can make a story for me that, you know, serves me to actually right. go forth and not have to silence myself in that way. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, that story also could have played out very differently. Right. And it can be and debilitating. For, for sure. sure. And I mean, I guess, you know, we we see that in the UK and, and 
all over the world, right? How people, individuals are framed to hold up certain narratives mm -hmm. and how people's lives get destroyed in order to feed into a narrative that's actually beyond the individual, but individuals yeah. are used for, for these, right? Yeah. And the I guess if people are listening from the UK, um, kind of like the new kind of stories around the Trojan horse affair came out, um, I mean, just, you know, a couple of months ago, um, and we can link the podcast series that has been kind of talking about this a lot and that I've learned a lot about it because I wasn't in the UK at that time. And so in Germany, mm -hmm. that story was never picked up and, yeah. you know, never didn't didn't know about it at all. And Jess actually re recommended the podcast to me um, where people go into that. And it, I feel like what you're saying also now is just like, yeah, it's just like this, like, it's almost like they use individuals, maybe also because other people... Because sometimes I think, you know, speaking on very systematic levels, also for people who actually uh, perpetrate that violence, right, is also very abstract because you can also detach yourself from it, right? Yeah. You're like, oh, like, I don't I do not do that narrative, so therefore I'm not Islamophobic. I don't do that mm. narrative. Oh, okay, so like, you know, I, I'm i not racist or I, yeah. I'm not, you know, the worst patriarch in the world. Like, <laughs> And so it's almost like, well, when you bring it on the individual level, suddenly you're like, oh, right, like, um, so this person is framed in this way and also the person who's per perpetuating the violence could also be me because suddenly I can relate to an individual which is a lot easier right and so I want yeah it's such a weird kind of like uh, yeah I guess it works like on all of these levels where it's like mm. you know individuals are used in order for other people to also kind of be able to n continue those narratives that are so Justified, so violent yeah. and um, I mean, yeah, at the same time, I'm really glad you kind of got out of out of that narrative of like, well, we are super powerful, you know. And, but, <laughs> well, I mean, you um, know, you have your days, right? But no, yeah, I think yeah, I think that's part of the tangle as well of like, because I think on the other side of that is also co-option, right? Like what, mm -hmm. what, because you kind of have, yes, people uh, being weaponized or being used to justify things. But then you also have, I mean, and maybe this is linked to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the the, the pressure to perform goodness mm -hmm. and be accepted by, you know, an assimilating white gaze and some of the other examples I use in the book is like you know where you have Muslim women as the face of <clears throat> counter-extremism initiatives and that being like look how empowered they are look how powerful they are and actually what they're doing is you know it's like Pretty Patel right it's like oh BAME women representation it's like what she's doing is like yeah. devastating yeah, people's yeah. lives and I think not all skin folk be kin folk <laughs> right exactly and I think we see but I think that's another way in which individuals are then it's like a different type of weaponization where it's to say but look like there but come on like she's doing it so that must be it must be a feminist thing now it must be like, like an anti-racist thing now and that's also like wild part of the and, tangle yeah And it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in, in both scenarios, what is happening is a, a conversation is being individualized because if we individualize it enough, then we can A, disconnect from it because it's got mm -hmm. nothing to do with me. It's an individual mm -hmm. over there. And B, we can be, um, you know, especially when we talk about representation politics, we can be um, sort of, Uh, lured into this idea of change, you know, yeah. in, we, into this idea of something's changing, something's better, because look, Pretty Patel. Mm. <laughs> right, right. Ah! Exactly. Anyway, <laughs> but, but, you know, or, or if we use, if we use a different example, and like, you know, I'm recording from America right now, you know, like Obama's election, you know, you get lured into this idea of, 
in terms of when I say you, I mean like the sort of critical mass, like the majority of people who, you know, doesn't sit there thinking about this kind of stuff the way that we do every day, get lured into this imagining of something's changing and it's that individualizing. And that's another thing that I love about, I think your book, your, um, your just generally your approach, your politics is that, you know, it's, it's not that it's all interconnected and it's on a societal and systemic level. But that also means that the solution is right. Like that, the, mm. the way out is actually around community and, and, and you, you talk about abolition, um, a lot as well. And, um, I wondered also as we're kind of get, getting towards an end, maybe um, how, if, if you could speak a little bit to abolition in the context of everything we've just talked about, yeah, right? In yeah. the context of the systemic societal nature of, of the things that we're dealing with, in the context of imagining other worlds, yeah. in the context of solidarity, like all those mm-hmm, things, mm-hmm. what, where does abolition stand mm-hmm, for you mm-hmm. and how how would you speak to that? Yeah, I think, you know, I've learned so much from the conversations that I've witnessed uh, around abolition and kind of, you know, it's something that at first I think seems really wild as a scenario. What do you mean get rid of the mm-hmm. whole thing? <laughs> um, but I think the more that, the more that I <laughs> <Okay>. sat with, <laughs> the more that I've kind of sat with, you know, the reality we live in, the more that it seems the only, the only viable way forward. And I say that in the context of, I think obviously we talk a lot about prison and policing in terms of the abolition conversation, but, you know, why I also wanted that to be a big part of the this book is that really the, I'd say the, the, the main beneficiary of Islamophobia, so the, the, the main beneficiary of this narrative that Muslims are a threat, has been a global security industry and uh, imperialism, right? And so these are capitalist projects, you know, you can sell... You can you basically in a, in a summary, if you are a drone manufacturing company, for example, you can sell more drones if you tell people that um, you know these Muslims they're a threat. We need to watch them and bomb them. Or these Muslims coming into your country, you know, you could surveil them over the North Sea through a drone, right? So I can sell more drones the more that I, I uphold this narrative. And so knowing that that is true, it becomes sort of it's not enough just to change the narrative about Islamophobia, right? It's not just, it's not enough to kind of say, well, Muslims are nice or to say, well, actually, you know, could we, could we reform, you know, rather than drones, could we have, um, I don't know, something, you know, because I think there is a lot of, there's a lot of like, how could we reform or improve um, rather than, you know, if we take prevent, for example, rather than prevent and surveilling all Muslims, maybe it's that we need to have a different approach. And I think what abolition affords or allows us to do is to say, no, in fact, the 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 role that these surveillance and securitizing um, mechanisms play in the world is not one that's worth replacing in any form. And I think that's a really strong argument because, uh, you know, we're at a stage now where I think um, on its own terms, you know, and, and I think this is the way that Mariam Carver talks about uh, with prisons, but I kind of feel like you can apply it to this, right, which is on its own terms, securitization doesn't work. So what I mean by that is we have amassed and amassed resources, surveillance, and mm. terrorist attacks continue, you know, people continue to, so mm-hmm. so it's not working on its own terms, but B, it's not working on our terms in the sense that these, these um, 
policies, these border controls, these internal surveillance mechanisms, these global um, you know, aid projects of selling surveillance abroad have not made people safer. In fact, they have made people so much less safe. We have you know, mm. thousands of refugees, like they're not randomly refugees, they're made, they are made to seek refuge because of these conditions. And so I kind of feel like it's not just the moral argument, it's the practical argument, it's the, um, it's all of that. And so what abolition, I think, helps to do is see that but then in addition to that go aha so it's not just a matter of replacing these things instead it's something else and I found that really useful because for example when when critics um of prevent will say like you know prevent needs to be repealed the argument or the kind of counter to that that you get from the government or government proponents is okay well what you know how are you going to stop violence and I think that's usually quite said in a very disingenuous way but actually I think Mm. If we can, it's an, if we kind of approach that with an abolitionist lens, we could say, well, great question. How are we going to approach violence? Mm. Perhaps what would happen if we had a fully funded healthcare system? What would happen if there was social housing for everybody? What would that do to the ways that people harm one another? What would happen if rather than imprisoning 15% of Muslims, we, you know, and so I think it's the what ifs that abolition also allows for. And, and just also that, that kind of the idea of, um, I suppose prioritizing, I suppose kind of putting punishment at the back end of the conversation and saying, before we come to punishing people, let's address the context that people live in. And that's really exciting mm-hmm. to me because, you know, yes, we can talk about, uh, you know, um, violence and kind of connecting Muslims to a conversation about violence. But if when you look at just the very baseline statistics about Muslims in the UK, particularly for just for a moment, it's 50% of Muslims live under the poverty line, 15% are in prison, um, or 15% of prison of, of those in prison are Muslim, uh, 50% of those in detention centres are Muslim. And I think just given those very basic statistics, it's clear that there's conditions of poverty that are really prominent for Muslim communities. So just the basic kind of question that abolition could help us to answer is what would happen if they weren't living in poverty. You know, what would that do to all the other outcomes? Because we know that poverty impacts your educational outcomes, your jobs, your health, your nutrition, your mental health, like everything. Yeah. So I think it's, it's that the abolition kind of, it, the re- it's that reason that it excites me. And it's and it's also because, you know, when as you reach the conclusion of the book and as you're writing it and you reach the conclusion, it's the question of, okay, so what am I telling, you know, what am I inviting people to? And that's where I kind of, you know, where I found myself landing was that, I hope that I've made the case that this is not viable, this is not sustainable, we can't live like this. But B, like you said earlier, Jess, I think that this is it's a collect, it's a job of collective imagining. It's a mm. I can't answer that question. I can't give a blueprint, but I believe that together we already know some of the answers because people are already doing it. Um but also that we, you know, I really do believe in the power of kind of like community and collectivity and I think that something really special happens even in this conversation I feel really you know galvanized um and just hearing one another being moved is really like you know it does something so I think that's also where abolition can take us and 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 that's why I wanted to put you know and final point on this I think Islamophobia I feel like has just always been reduced to this conversation about hate crimes and um you know like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson saying mean things and so it was also really important for me to go actually, no, this is a conversation about the state of the world. And it's a conversation about what other world we might live in. Um, And that was also just because I felt like we deserve more of a rigorous analysis, basically. Um, But yeah, I think abolition just, it's just such a, 
it's just a provoca I think it's just such a useful provocation, you know, even if it doesn't, even if we don't end up with answers, it's like those what ifs are so helpful and they've been so helpful to me. And they're so beautiful, right? Like, I mean, so beautiful, like even just you posing, you know, a couple of questions of all the things that we can like go into that abolition proposes, right? Or that maybe opens the door. I think that's what, what it's always been for me. It's like open a door of like, yeah. well, first of all, like why should people be punished? Why do we see people uh, in certain images as if like, you know, always this like, well, they're definitely, got, they are wrong and they first need to prove themselves as not criminals, as not wrong, as not this, not that, rather than just seeing people as, you know, full humans and certain conditions might lead to some behavior. But, you know, like, I think like the material and also the influences around like the non-material world that we build in. And also when, you know, I mean, this is, you know, so much of the state violence that is constantly perpetuated, right? It's like, if you constantly tell someone that someone is bad or is fundamentally wrong in something, you know, first of all, it changes what you were talking earlier, this, you know, you surveil yourself, you act in different ways. But but at the same time, also, it's like, well, if everybody already thinks like I'm I'm so bad in this, then, you know, like, why should I constantly prove myself to you guys, you know? And like, it's such a, and I feel like abolition is, is so much of this, like opening the doors into territories that are so powerful mm. which is why we don't explore them a lot right and this like well what would actually do if our fundamental not just needs but we could actually thrive for once mm. you know and like not not just some communities but like all and yeah. and we actually can and i think this is also what we kind of spoke about in the beginning about this what what happens if we don't always just have to resist and we can actually have spaces to just like do something beyond the limitations yeah. of what we're fighting for yeah And so, yeah, I, yeah, I really love that. And I, mm. maybe on the back of that to kind of slowly wrap up, unless Jess, you want to speak something to that as well, because I just want to, I, I just wanted to ask for some like calls of actions. I mean, obviously everybody re, you know, tangled in tarot, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, like read your book, listen to your poetry, we'll send some links in the comment, well, in the description of the episode to engage with your Thank work. You. But I don't know, do you have anything else that you want to share with us that we haven't explored? or? Actions? Yeah, I suppose, um, I suppose just a final point maybe to make is, you know, one of the conversations I had with my editor as we were finishing the book, she was like, you know, is there something that you want to is it that you want everybody to start campaigning against Islamophobia, for example? And I was like, actually, no, I think it's more that what I, what I don't want is for everyone to read the book and go, oh, that was great. Put it on the shelf and move on. And I think what I mean is that whatever you're already doing, and, you know, I think this applies to, you know, any injustice really, but like thinking about anti-racism for a moment, whatever work you're already doing, you will be imbricated and in this tangle somehow, you know, whether it's that you work in a domestic violence shelter, some of the narratives you will have about Muslims and about women and Muslim women will feed into the work you do, whether you work in, I don't know, wherever you work, right? Like an educational setting, healthcare, it's because Islamophobia is just so much a part of our like social imagination. So I suppose the invitation is that rather than kind of seeing Islamophobia only as these big pieces of like legislation or security industrial complex also seeing okay in what i do day to day where might i be um you know and it's not that maybe you're not willingly doing it but where am i forced to uphold islamophobia or where am i um just by default upholding it and i think that's the that's the thing again where it's like you know we do have not only power but we have responsibility um and so i think 
there's that question of, you know, even if you're just finishing listening to this podcast, you know, kind of not letting it be something that you just put behind you, but allowing it to be something, a discomfort perhaps even that sits with you for, for a little bit. And, mm. you know, we all have that, right? Like I, I feel all the time there are so many ways in which, you know, ugh, you do end up upholding something or you end up kind of allowing something to pass you by, or maybe it's just a narrative that somebody kind of is using and you, you don't know how to, um, you know, question it in that moment. But I think it's okay that we don't get it right every time. It's it's just that if we can begin to move in the direction and then, as we said earlier, like collectively doing that, I think that's really powerful. So that, that would probably be my main invitation and the, the thing we said earlier about language. Um, mm. I, I think just, you know, using using the, the tools that we already have. Um, but yeah, more than anything, I think there's a really, you know, it's important to me that this is intersectional, that whatever you're already doing, you, you know, it, and, and I think mm-hmm. the examples I give in the book, I try and remember a few of them, but it's like, if you're an environmental activist, that's not unlinked to this, because actually so many people mm-hmm. around the world who are displaced by environmental fata- catastrophe are then blocked at the border because of Islamophobia, because it's the, oh, well, yeah. you're like an other coming to steal our resources. And so those things are, you know, you might think it's like tangential, but actually no, those things are connected. And I think we can do that with many different examples. So yeah, that's probably, mm-hmm. that's probably the invitation I would make. Wherever you are, I'm not asking you to move. I'm just asking you to kind of let this feed into where you are. Yeah. And I, I, it's so wonderful that you're saying this because that, that's been my experience of reading the book already. And even this conversation, you know, as, as someone who does anti-racism work, yeah. reading the book and, and interrogating myself, mm-hmm. right? and and my work and in in a you know a lot of the the work I do is around um actually really interrogating and not letting shame stop us from reflecting and doing better sometimes we can get so caught up in like a shame spiral Mm -hmm. and then we're like you know now I'm going to go into denial because I can't deal with the feeling of shame. Mm-hmm. But what if what if I can just recognize and and that's what's happened for me already, right? Mm-hmm. Like reading the book and going, okay, what I'm doing already isn't bad, isn't wrong, mm-hmm. but there's stuff that I've not been seeing, right. and that's the same for all and of us. What would it look like, yeah. you know, if 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 I added and if I in, in, interrogated and. You, you say in, in the end of the book, you say untangling ourselves from complicity is not an overnight process. However, it is the work of life. And I think that that sentence, right, is first of all, can release us from shame because there's this thing of it, we're all in it. Yeah, we are. <laughs> we're all complicit yeah. mm-hmm. and it's going to take forever. But that doesn't mean we don't do it. Because we can actually, like, like my my work, everything I do has been changed by the book you wrote mm. and by the conversation we just had. Yeah. What would it mean if we listened to things mm. like that? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, just thank you. Well, thank I mean, you. I think yeah, it takes the, the humility and the open heartedness, like you say, to, to, you know, I think you, we have to see ourselves as people who are always growing. And if we don't, then that, yeah. does, that does stop us, right? That also stops yeah. us because, mm-hmm. as you said, it's, mm-hmm. it's shame and it's also fear and other things and I think there's mm-hmm. something so radical about being willing to always say huh perhaps mm-hmm. I hadn't perhaps I hadn't got the full scope of it and every day every day right again oh yeah. I still didn't yeah. oh there's still more there's oh wow <laughs> you know and but also like how exciting right yeah. that like we can like always like I don't yeah. know I think it's like such a Michaela and I talked about this recently where it's like, well, like, imagine like this was like the end and like right. this is the final version of myself. No. Like, oh, yeah. you know, I mean, no. uh, 
you yeah, know yeah. i hope not because yeah. like i don't know i'm just like i'm like you know when you reflect on your own journeys i'm i'm like i'm so like amazed by how many people have like you know invested in me how like how i've been taught so many things how so i have learned so much and then like imagine where you can like go yeah. by being in yeah. community and learning and like it's so yeah i mean i think as jess like i've been so inspired and you know i like i don't know it's your work has impacted me so much that i'm yeah just want to say thank, thank you, you so again. much honestly and i feel been... so lucky to be speaking to people who engage so deeply with you know you sit in your room on your own right Re writing this book for mm -hmm. hours and hours and mm -hmm. it really yeah it means more than i can say for you to you know really generously um hear me and see me like it means a lot so thank you god i'm gonna cry again what is i know it's an unexpectedly emotional conversation i thought we were yeah. just gonna like i don't know <laughs> I'm leaving this conversation with like all the emotions. I like, mean, goosebumps, tears, smiles, tears, hope, happiness, joy, hope, power. Like, oh. yeah, I I love that so much, and I I'm so grateful for her, like her all of her work and for being on this podcast. Yeah. And I think, I mean, everything you know from even like the call of action, mm -hmm. the way I think she kind of extends this grace of like just do it in your everyday do it in your everyday it doesn't you know it's it's not the single event that we have to do actually like maybe that's even more harmful but it's like yeah. the everyday yeah. and this like learning everyday in community is so powerful yeah and you know speaks again to kind of the yeah the the abolitionist yeah. but also this like beautiful kind of approach that she takes for justice that is so um i don't know i've learned a lot i'm i'm so deeply, much yeah Yeah. I yeah. I mean, you know, I said it at the end of, in the, in the conversation with her, I'm, I'm changed, you know, by, by the book, mm -hmm. um, by this conversation. So super, super grateful and just really hope that, you know, everyone who listened, um, had, is, has been moved as well. And, and yeah, go read the book. Like, I don't even know what else to say. Go read the book, go follow, um, Sahima, go follow her work, go follow, um, and engage and then sit with your stuff. We all, as we all sit with our stuff yeah. and grow through it, we've actually got the power to change. And so I'm, yeah, really excited and so excited that you had me here for this conversation. <laughs> Oh my gosh, no, thank you again. It was such a pleasure. And also the three of us, I don't know, I it was amazing Magic. to be able to speak with both of you. Yeah, it was super beautiful. So yes, please go buy the book. Um, as before, um, we do still have a discount code for all the books on Pluto Press, which they have kindly given to us. Uh, 50% off so wow. you know there's literally no excuse to buy Hello. this book uh, it's yeah it's this discount called uh, Yikes50 we'll put it in the description link um, and just again the name of the book is Tangled in Terror Uprooting Islamophobia please as Jess already said go follow on all the platforms um, 
And yeah, Sohema on Instagram is called The Brown Hijabi. And so, um, and also she has a website which we will leave in the description um, and has all of her work collected there. Uh, thanks again for our Patreons who've generally made this uh, podcast, you know, sustainable and just generally possible. Thank you guys so much. And well, thanks, Jess. Plug yourself. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. If you, uh, you know, if you're listening and you're like, oh, Jess isn't half bad in co-hosting a podcast, you'll uh, be pleased to know that my own podcast is actually back um, by the time this is uh, going to be out uh, called The Third Way Podcast with, with a really exciting series um, called Healthy Humans for Social Change. So go ahead, listen to that. You can follow me on Instagram. Um, don't expect too much, though. I don't post a lot, but at Jess Mally and all the podcast stuff will be on there, too. Thank you for The Sound Magic by Finney Mord. And you can follow the Yikes podcast uh, on Instagram and also Twitter. Um, please, as always, leave a review on all of the streaming platforms. It does help the podcast a lot in just being kind of disseminated wide. And obviously we want to yeah, engage with as many folk as possible around these conversations. Uh, and you can follow Michaela on the social media platforms at Michaela Loach and myself on as Trees and Peace on Instagram and Josephine Becker on Twitter. And with that, um, that's all. Um, there was a lot of plug plug, but we're going <laughs> to put it all, all of the links, all of the things in the description. And yeah, we will see you in two weeks with another episode. Bye.